0: El the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Devin Borman of Academy Duolo. Welcome back. It's great to see you again.
1: Yeah, great to be back on.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. So, um, now that it's November, we're going to be talking about pole arms and pole arms in every capacity that you can possibly imagine.
1: Awesome. It's a favorite topic.
0: All so, right,
2: um, let's get into the questions, shall we? Sure. All right. Uh, So can you talk a bit about your background with pole arms, you know, just kind of in general? And have you developed any sort of philosophy to how you teach pole arms?
1: Yeah, so I've I have moved my way around a lot of different pole arms material over time. Um, I have um, I I kind of early on, I got very interested in early HEMA days, uh, I think, along with many, many people. So this is, you know, 30 years ago, kind of territory. Uh, maybe more 25 years ago uh, early modern HEMA days um, I spent a bunch of time with like George Silver and Joseph Swetnam's um, quarterstaff material lots of people were, it was accessible material um, and that was kind of an interesting place to start on fundamental polearm work and it was very interesting because Silver kind of talks up polearms constantly in his book um, right. where you know right. the the quarterstaff or the bill are the the weapons that he essentially he, he kind of is usually like rapier suck they'll be right. beaten by anybody with a backsword but of course right. other than the person who has a quarterstaff or a forest bill or black bill so right. like, you know so that's kind of which is interesting i think that's interesting commentary i think that even um, as much as uh, of a contentious figure as he is in modern hema i think he's an interesting commentator on things especially on italians um and um uh, so i started there and i've also done some chinese spear and that kind of thing then i really dove into fiore's um spear and poleax material uh, i spent time on judah hash um again being a mm-hmm. uh, i was able yeah. to get a transcription of it and i'm a, a french reader speaker so i was able to to do my best to work through that material early on um and um uh, so i enjoyed uh, so that was part of it and um uh, and then I got more into the Bolognese material, um, working through um, Morozzo's material first. And that's kind of where I've spent a lot of time, but also Manchilino. Um And then, you know, most recently over the last many years, I've spent more time. I went from kind of partisans um, to right. doing some of the, the, the Axe material from the anonimo into doing uh, single-handed partisan and Rotella um as been kind of some more of the more recent
2: yeah that's fine yeah that's a yeah lot it's fun and it's
1: interesting material it's interesting because i think there's a lot um a lot of a lot to suggest that that was their version of hema um uh, because they were <laughs> um you know yeah, reenacting historical reenactment. His, yeah. histor- their, their reenactment of of epics you know and I, I love the idea of multi-weapon you know for having two yeah two spears you know two two spears and uh um and a sword and the rotella um, I think that's really... <laughs> it's that, fantastic that really cardio, too. <laughs> totally, and it, and it also really captures this sort of interdisciplinary aspect of the art within yeah, one yeah. fighting encounter. Um, so that's been kind of the, the broad strokes of my exploration. Um, I do find pole arms are interesting in that even, I've also done some Chinese spear, and I've done some Japanese um, work, not to any degree that I would um, argue proficiency in it, but I've spent time uh, learning from other people uh, okay. about those systems um, one thing that i find is that when we look at spear work it is some of the area spear and long pole arm work partisans things like that it's some of the most uh the, the material that has the most commonality across martial arts
2: oh even more than dagger defense you think
1: um yeah well daggers have a lot of different shapes and so i think that's one of the yeah, things okay. you know like it, it, when we, when we talked last time about rondelle daggers and having a lot of similarities right. a rondelle is a very particular type of dagger as soon as you start changing the shapes and the, the cutting properties of those daggers and what type of armor people have then you actually get a fair variety of knife type stuff but spears tend to um even you know techniques for armored or unarmored spear tend to be quite similar i think the main difference that um when we're looking at staff work is in you know unarmored situations you see there are some approaches to staff work that are more thrusting oriented as their primary and some that are more below like this the staff system in meyer yoke and meyer is more rotational In orientation. Oh, actually, you know what? I have another thing. I've also, I did my Jogo de Pau instructor certification with Luis Preto many years ago. So that's uh, Portuguese um, staff fighting. Also, a very, uh, traditionally, a very circular system. So, tending to do, you know, very, coming from a tradition of group combat, uh, fighting, using a stick to fight multiple opponents. Um, And so then you get much more rotational type action versus getting into. Um, spear systems and things, which are either coming from judicial dueling in armor, where you really maximize the use of the point, um, or you're having something that's oriented a little bit more towards civil defense or towards battlefield. In which case, you also are not whirling your weapon around; um, uh, you're tending to use it more point-oriented. Um, and that's, I think, we see, you know, in the like the partisan material. Um, interesting enough for it being a bladed spear tends to in the bolognese stuff do almost only um trusting yeah. and and very little cutting um which i think is notable i've i've picked there's some partisans i've picked up historical ones that i think yeah i can see why this wouldn't be used for cutting it's like the 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 metal is actually some, some of them is quite thin um, uh, but there's some that i thought man you could i'd happily this would this would cleave through somebody quite easily um, and i think it's notable that that we don't see more of that um, in One the Bolognese the text. other
0: great contradictions of the Bolognese text, right? Morazzo <laughs> giving you a cut with the partisan and then in the next sentence telling you that the partisan's not really useful. <laughs> yeah, not useful for cutting, <laughs> I know, totally. That <laughs> sounds
2: so Morazzo. <Moretel. laughs> that <laughs> sounds totally yeah. Morazzo. I, I, I like that, yeah,
1: go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was saying, and Morazzo also says in the Spadoni section <laughs> where there's like a, a thrust is only ever a feint. <laughs> Like that's right. Sick. We're never ever gonna hit with a thrust. It's like long weapon. It's never gonna hit with a thrust. <laughs> um, yeah,
2: I, I like that. Partisan was a generic term for a stabbing polearm in, um, right? In the anonymous, it's like whatever. Wrong, you know, Bill Spiedo, partisan Spirit, They're all just partisans. It Doesn't really matter. They stab. Right. There's poleaxes, right. and then there's partisans. That's that's it.
1: Right. And and I think that there's you know being kind of reductionist in that way i think is useful from a teaching pedagogical perspective you know i can i i think you know when i teach often i would say that i kind of divide the polar material into the material that involves blows and the material that involves thrusts right, right. Um, and in a way that also lends itself well to a kind of joco largo joco strepto type of of idea as well um so yeah yeah
2: that's awesome um, so we kind of answered this a little bit. Maybe you have something more on the topic. Have you found any distinct features of Bolognese pole arms that sets it apart from other systems?
1: Um, well, the one I think the thing that we have in the Bolognese polar material is just we have a lot of like we the benefit and the beauty of those manuals is we have multi-intention actions. Um, whereas when we explore Fiore or when we explore um, uh, you know, some of the early German sources and things, you have a lot more. Um, you are seeing a, a you well, I'm sure they're multi-intention, but what they're sharing with us is kind of the the moment. And so we right. don't get as much of this idea of what the strategy is. Um, and so it's something I think is quite special about about the Bolognese material in all regards.
0: Do you think we see as much trapping with other polearm systems as we see with the Polynesian system?
1: There's a certain amount in Jitalash. Um, uh, And um, and you're talking about, like, head trapping. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, But it doesn't... We don't see it. it, Like, it's not displayed. It might be... I don't know. There's some... Some manuals I have, like there's a little bit in, if I'm trying to, the last last manual, that I polar manual I spent a bunch of time on is the compendium, one of the compendiums by, from Paulus Hector Mare, which is like that huge, you know, yeah, tons of polar yeah. material. Um, and even there, there's not a lot of trapping, it's true. So sure, it's, it's yeah. interesting that that's not commented on, uh, but I also feel like it's because they're omitting the fencing.
0: Mm. And that's kind of, yeah, yeah. That's kind of one of those things that you would do at the at the be- at the outset. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about, you know, especially um, with uh, Manchialino in particular. I think it's his second play with the partisan. I think you you end up casting it right. And you're throwing the partisan to cast to yeah. or at least casting it aside Expand as it. you trap it down to the ground, so that way you can run in and stab somebody with their dagger. But yeah, well and there's
1: even there. there's also a play, I can't remember this in Menchilino or Morozo, where they talk about taking it into the shield and then shedding the shield. Like you take their part as this is a def, another sort of thought. Again, we don't have to where really to take it into the shield, it's just to shed the shield to essentially disarm them and then enter in um in with two hands on the weapon. Um again, we don't really have that's you know, like I, I feel like this is this they're giving us much more detail on what the fencing is like, what the 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 precursor, the entering action, the you know, like, that's that's something that um, is missing. Uh, and so it's hard to say, did it not happen? Or was it just not here? It's just not in these books. It's just not what they were, what they were sharing in these moments. Although I think that's some interesting stuff, um, some of the, the trapping. Like, I think when I'm teaching, um, although, interestingly, if I don't teach that at the outset, we get into trapping and how to free the head of your weapon and all that yeah. kind of stuff. I tend to deal with that kind of in the next level of the teaching as opposed to on the fundamental level. You know, we start yeah, with because then you just have people trapping them.
0: all the time, right. and that's all right. you. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> it's just annoying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also easy for people to become over-focused on, on an aspect like that. Um, but, of course, if you omit it, you're certainly surprised the first time somebody, um, like, pulls on the head of your weapon when you're right. not expecting it.
2: But you don't want to build that's a for system sure. for somebody around gimmick attacks.
1: Right. Yes.
2: Cool. Um, So this next question is kind of a two-parter. How would you explain the popularity of the partisan over the spear? And also, why did the Bolognese masters seem to prefer the tip-down guard with the partisan versus a tip-up guard?
1: Um, sorry, give me the first the first part again. Yeah, it's kind
2: of a two parter. Sorry. How would you explain the popularity of the partisan over the spear? Why do you think the Bolognese masters, you know, they, they have a very a lot of mm. information for partisans that, and much less for spear?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, when I was um, I spent some time uh, when I was looking through the collection at the, the Doge's Palace in Venice. They have a Jealous. big section of. Of, uh, of partisans, and then there's a bunch of spears, and spears have tiny, tiny heads on them. Very small. Yeah. Oh, so, um, okay, got it. Which is interesting. I just That's something that I think about. Whereas, um, So, you know, one thing when you fight with a spear that has a very light head on it, even if you're just planning to thrust, um, it is certainly, um, it doesn't have very much presence, and so it's actually a lot harder to control against a weapon, to, to maintain mm. control um, okay. against a weapon that... Um, Uh, has more mass forward of the hands. Um, So I don't know whether that speaks to, you know, I just think that maybe that weapon, the spear is used more simply. um, And whereas the partisan has more one, you know, we can imagine if it did cut, it has a greater breadth of system to it. Uh, But I think it kind of comes down to kind of a discussion that we'd had last time about um, uh, that. I think that there's more system to teach to it and that's what you're going to put in a book is something that has more system to it, you right. know. Fiore's spear section is six plays or six images. It's not even like it's 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 <laughs> okay. really yeah. short, um, and uh, and you know because I think for for good reason. Uh, not one is because Fiore is not showing you every action with every weapon, um, but also I think that that weapon has just simpler in its in in what you do with it. Because he's not um, trying to sell books either, so it's he's just also what he thinks is books. absolutely necessary, right?
0: right it's interesting that like manchialino gives the the anecdote that shorter weapons are always superior to longer weapons mm, wait, and so he actually misses the, the, lo- the other way that around
2: the, he says the other no way around.
0: no the really? the shorter weapon is superior to the longer weapon yeah because it always has more danger so what he oh, says okay. is like mm-hmm. the partisan is su- superior to the the spear um the dagger is more dangerous than the sword so on and so forth and, going on. I actually, when I was fighting at Queen's Gambit this year, um, I, I was fighting in the, the partisan competition, uh, that they had and, um, got down to the final and I was fighting in the final match. And I, I, I was talking to the guy I was, I was going to fight and he was talking about how he was going to use this longer, uh, uh, partisan that was available because we had our choice of different partisans. And I, the moment he said that there were, Manchiolino started screaming in my mind and it was he was just like, You need to grab the, the shorter weapon. And I was like, Alright, I'm gonna do that because it has better lugs and it's shorter and Manchiolino says this is the way to go, so I'm gonna roll with this. And it worked. It it worked really That's well. Good. I was able to I because I had better dexterity, every time he extended to attack me, I was able to both defend and then counterattack and disengage a lot faster than he could. And even though he had more distance, um, I was able to basically just create this box of defense and then because of I especially with the nature of a, a longer pole weapon I always found that once he had his momentum going forward if I could redirect that momentum away and get my point back online you know there were times when I couldn't but when I could I could I could counterattack very quickly and still keep myself safe where I could mm. still make it cover as I was going out so i don't,
2: mm. I don't
1: know if yeah that's I think that's it's I think there's a lot to be said for that you know I feel like the the head of the partisan gives it more presence in that space. It also can be used to defend and occupy space with its, you know, with the the lugs uh, and the blade itself. Um, and whereas a lighter weapon, yeah, is set aside more easily. Uh, although it is freer, you know, certainly one of the things to do with a spear is to just use it like sewing machine, um, and right. that's I like, think one of the most yeah. <laughs> most difficult things to deal with against a weapon that doesn't have a head that is going to be trapped as easily. It's just to enter and exit. The point of that weapon. The other thing is, you know, this is thinking about rotational blows. When you don't have um, as much mass on the end of the weapon, when you're set aside, um, there's certainly a lot more to be said. Like in a one-on-one fight, to to bring that weapon around in a full circle, like think about right. Meyer shows a lot more of these big rotations um, in the in his staff section, uh, even than he does in his axe section. Um, and that's that is maybe because of the lightness of the weapon and also the necessity to um, to be it's gonna be set aside and you need to work with that force a lot more. Um, whereas, you know, partisans got a lot more inertia because of its weight. Yeah. Um now so, some of the you know back yeah. to the you know lengths of spears and things, we know there's some of the spears in the Doges Palace were the same lengths as the partisans. Some of the partisans were longer because maybe not the wood of the the, the shaft, uh-huh. but the head of the partisan. There are some partisans that the uh, the blade, like it might as well be a gavelino, like the, the length of the blade was so long um
2: wonder if those are more uh,
1: ceremonial yeah it's hard to, hard to to say
2: so why do you think the bolognese like to do the tip down guard with the oh yeah tip so down much? guard
1: sort of that part um you know uh i well one it is more restful <laughs> <laughs> Uh,
2: <laughs> so I'm just going to let this guy tire himself out for a yeah, while while yeah, I hang it's, out.
1: It's a, it's a big stick. It's more restful, to put a point down. Like I, you know, I say that jokingly, but also there's some reality to to, okay. to that. Um, that. Silver says this thing about um, fighting in the point down guards, uh, that they are superior for fighting at night um, because the weapon itself is protecting more of your body um, and Silver's holding the weapon over his head. Um and so, um, uh, and so then you have more of the, the, the weapon itself in the way, um, okay. whereas when you're point up, it's actually covering half as much of your body Right. Um, by okay. being point up. Um, so there's, there is that aspect of things. Now, the Bolognese seem to fight point down and leave the head open often. Um, but again, that's a type of... Uh, there is a, a way you can think of that as a type of constrainment, and we see that in um you know in a lot of especially as we get later into rapier and spears have got a lot of rapier like things is when you point have the weapon down you cover everything by its presence um make it you know except for your head and so now there's you're still offering a single target to your opponent and that target is a very narrowly constrained target it's a very small target um and it's where all your sense organs are. So you're certainly more aware and people are judging distance to it. <laughs> right. Um, and so, uh, you know, I can see a tactical benefit. You're narrow. you know, if you- I'm going to narrow the target, it's actually quite difficult for me to expose only one other target, like for me to make only my leg available right um is is kind of is difficult in a certain kind of way especially because i can't make that exposed without presenting this threat that they have to deal with whereas when i put the point down i take away their capacity to control my weapon as easily i if i leave my head open i have constrained down to the single target and it's one that i can expose most easily and yet it's also the one that i can close most easily
2: cool yeah
0: Reminded me a little bit of Morazzo's partisan technique, right? Where he tells you to expose your leg.
2: Oh, yeah. Um,
0: (laughs) I always have this visual image of Morazzo, you know, kind of pulling his his
1: (laughs) hand back. (laughs) Showing off his his well-turned ankles. (laughs) Get a look at these gams.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Because... (laughs)
0: <laughs> because, like you mentioned, it, it is it is hard to kind of, like, it, in that moment, like, get your opponent to really feel like that your leg is exposed in some right. ways, you know? Like, right. it's like, how am I going to get them to really bite on this? And so, yeah, I don't know. Perhaps you know well, the,
1: one is choke up the on trick. the weapon more, you know, which we see in the north, so shows a lot of images of holding the, the partisan in the middle. Um, so that mm-hmm. certainly increases your leverage, but it also reduces the threat, which could be used to have somebody feel like the leg is a little more appetizing.
0: Yeah, so they're gonna take that take that bite. That's interesting. Yeah, like that.
1: So the uh,
2: the Bolognese mm-hmm. masters also seem to prefer kind of a left foot forward stance.
1: And what do you think's up with that? Um, you know, well, we see both things. Um, part of of, uh, and, you know, Fiore shows some left foot forwards, has a left foot forward spear stance as well. A lot of left foot forward spear stances, actually. Um, uh, he only shows one that's that's showing the, the that's kind of a, in profile as the default. Um, I think that one thing, a few things you get from left foot leading, um, one of them is that you are, If you're creating invitation, you're saving your dominant side to move forward after the parry, after the invitation. Mm. Um, As opposed to having, if you want to take a larger entering step, if you have your right foot forward, then you actually need to step with your left foot. And so then you either need to step while keeping your hips oriented the same way, or you'll open the line, right? So you actually shorten the length of step that you can take and keep the line closed. Um, If you are starting with your right foot forward Um, uh, and I and the Bolognese, you know, though they use advancing and retreating footwork, they tend to not use sequences of advancing and retreating footwork. Right. Um, They they do a lot more natural walking, passing. Right. And so if you're if you're going to fight in that attitude, as does Fiore, then starting with the left foot forward has a tactical advantage. So that when
2: you actually yeah. make your attack, you'll be, then you'll be right with forward. your right foot Then you'll be profiled. You be. Then
1: you'll All the things that we think naturally, of course, that's where we want to end up. Why would I expose so much? Well, they're not entering in and fighting that way. They didn't start right, right foot forward and then step forward and become left foot forward right. and then have all those problems that we naturally see. No, they start with those when they have distance. They use those as invitation. And then they have the capacity to step foot. And when they step now, when they step with their right foot, just the nature stepping with your right foot closes the lines. Yep. If that makes sense. Okay,
2: cool.
0: Morazzo gives an interesting anecdote. This wasn't a pole arm thing, but he actually gives an interesting anecdote in his um, his progression through the guards section, where he when he's talking about Codo longa Alta, he talks about how Codo longa Alta is a good defensive guard because the left foot is forward. Mm. Because that right foot just kind of like what you were saying, like in in the defense, mm. you get that hip shift. So you have yeah. the you have the hinge of the hips from facing off to the side. Uh, let's say if you're left foot, left foot forward in your profiles, your hips are facing off to the side. You do a passing step. Now you've flipped your hips all the way around so that right. you've created that opening on the inside. and You can start to begin some sort of a counterattack or offensive action.
1: Yeah, and you so go, in a lot of those cases, you go from being, when the, the weapon side, your dominant side is withdrawn, you're more square. And then you become narrower. You become smaller. You know, as opposed to when you defend yourself from a guard that is the opposite, the defense itself makes you more open yeah makes you a larger yeah, you also,
0: right and you i guess you also have that um you have the benefit of of basically having a tri-action too right so if you're if you're starting with that left foot forward you end up passing with that right foot you can you can basically determine how that back foot is oriented which will orient the the structure of the hips so if, if yes. that back foot If you turn the back foot as you're stepping then you can go back to a squared stance and so if your attack misses then you always have the option of getting that hip hinge going back forward so you basically have three built-in intentions to that one step which Mm -hmm. is super fascinating
1: and you know how i uh, the even the way that the body becomes closed, you know, you can step away and you na- become narrower, you step forward and you become narrower. Um, and so, you know, usually when I'm, uh, when I'm standing left leg forward in a spear stance, I'm, i um, I if I'm going to enter forward, I tend to close with the hips and shoulders and then finally step at the foot. So I actually have still and I've got a lot of distance that is hidden within the turn of the hips and shoulders mm-hmm. yep. um, that I don't have when I'm uh, weapon side forward. All of that is already spent. And so in thinking about this sort of multi intention action, when I'm left foot forward, I can extend the weapon and turn the shoulders as part of my first intention. And you might react to that and I can still step away. I'm not committed. My body's not committed to that action yet um i can you know deceive or counter your action and then enter like there's kind of a lot of time and a lot of intention i can play with before i make that commitment whereas when you're already right leg forward and we see this in later rapier manuals you know we get a lot of spear fencing aka rapiers um um, with uh uh with uh when you've got uh, your right leg forward then all of your deceptions all of your intentions all become way smaller because right. uh, because you only have a, a small amount of hidden distance to give. And then you need to commit your body when you make deceptions as well. Or you need to commit your feet because you don't really have much more to play with. Uh, not, not that you have to, but you often do to give a bigger sell. Whereas, again, when you're left leg forward, you've got a lot more distance to play with.
2: So it's interesting. You... I like that thought. Yeah. It's interesting to yeah. think about it. Why do you think the Bolognese authors distinguish between so many different types of pole arms? We've got, you know, spears and partisans and roncas and pikes and, you know, whatever, right? Is a spiedo really so different from a partisan that it deserves its own special section? That I've kind of
1: wondered about too, because I, okay. like I, 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 I don't feel like I don't I don't feel like there's was anything is really offered mm-hmm. in that spiedo section that made me think, oh, that's why it's done right. The <laughs> this is worth a whole separate chapter. <laughs>
2: so do you think maybe it's a marketing gimmick? Like, not only do I have partisan and spirit, but I also have spiedo. Oh, there you <laughs> Very go. nice.
1: John. Yes, yeah. you got the bat wings. Right. Yeah. Well, I I, think, go ahead, Josh. What I, do you think?
0: But I I think that's why right. So this veto allows you for for your trapping actions and for you know, uh, I think that there's a lot more play with the wings of the partisan in terms of being able to catch and manipulate. So,
1: I, I I'm with you on that. Although some partisans, it see again, this is a little bit of a difficult thing. Some things that are classed as partisans have wings on them too. Um, do they do they capture as much? You know, like I like I I um i wonder you know is it like is it marketing or is it like certainly all of these different weapons have different properties you know whether you put a right. hook on the end of your weapon or or you know a spear pointer an axe head or a meat tenderizer or a, um you know like each of those things definitely has a different property about how you might employ them um and i think that's important to speak to um uh and though i um i feel like uh they could have spoken to them a lot more that's that's the thing is i feel like what's offered in those Mm -hmm. different weapon sections it seems small compared to what we can clearly see are the differences between these weapons um uh now again that's you know like if i were to write a pole arms manual now what i might do is you know have like here is the maybe i would i might divide it as like axe and spear you know cutty pole arms thrusty pole arms, Um, then I might have a adaptations for armor, and then I might have a, here is, you know, a page for all of these different types of weapon heads, and how, okay, you have uh, this, this one has a hook and a spear point, so thus you will use, here's some special actions for that, this one has larger uh, wings, so you can use, here's some trapping actions, this one has, you know, I think that's how I would, how I would organize that material now, um, and when
2: can we expect this book? I'm looking forward right. to. it. I, actually, I'm kind of getting excited about it as I talk about it. <laughs> All right, well, I, gave, I guarantee you one advance sale. <laughs>
1: I, I'll that sounds that. like a great book. Right. Yeah. Well, I think All it'd right. just be because it'd be a blast to put that book together. I would have to. I would. I would have to. It would be a business expense for me to own like 35 different pole um, arms. <laughs> <heads. laughs> I know Uh, a guy. I know a guy. He can help you out. That's awesome.
2: That's awesome. All right. So it's a marketing gimmick then. Got it. (laughs) Meaning, I don't. I don't.
1: I think that there is something to what Josh is talking about of there being some different qualities to these heads, and they want to share that. I just wish that they'd shared more, and I feel like that's underrepresented. But then I think there's something about what what they're how they are sharing information in a book that is different than we would want from books now. And what you know, like whether their book is, is there to show all the secrets or it's simply there to tell us that they know some of those secrets. Oh there's yeah, the Spieto and the partisan oh, are different. Right. Here I'm gonna share with you a little bit about it. But of course, if you want more, you're gonna to have to study with me. Right. Um, For I'm not your going to logo tell you price at fourteen lira. Right. You know, there there are these different weapons and there are right. and I'm gonna share, share with you a little bit about the difference between these weapons, but of course I'm not gonna share with you everything about um about these weapons but i'm going to show you that this is a whole system it is not you know i think that's why again we often have little pieces um of these different you know different weapons why the you know manchilino sections get smaller as it goes you know right. one because he's represented the art and it's an art and it it goes across different weapons uh, but i think another part is He's not trying to show you the whole art with every weapon. He's trying to show you that it is an art and that these weapons do have that there is this diversity and that it is important to consider these other weapons. Um and uh, and I think I, you know Murillo is even more scant in some of his later stuff right. that he shows us. Okay, that um, makes a lot of sense. He's not trying to give us everything there, but he's he's showing you I have thought mm-hmm. about everything. Um I think that's what's important.
2: And so the anonymous is different because the anonymous actually is somebody trying to capture an entire art. Like he's trying to give you everything you can (laughs) possibly do with a one-handed sword. And they're trying to to give you snippets.
1: Right. The anonymous reminds me a lot more like of a later manual of of Fabris where, you know, Fabris is this rapier manual that where he tries to show you like, you know, because the anonymous has multiple actions for, you know, like often goes through these different. Um, Multi permutation actions. Yeah, yeah, right. And the same thing that, that Fabris does. And there is definitely, you know, Fabris says that he wants this to be a book that um, his patron son can learn from. Um, and, and you know, maybe the Anonymous has more of that intention of being a book that you would learn from um, more fully, more completely. Right.
2: Rather than like a maestro just kind of getting his name out there so that you should come contract with him, which is how he wants to teach you anyway. Right. Cool. Um, So let's talk about the coolest of all the pole arms. Uh, That would be the pole axe. (laughs) The pole axe is just, I mean, all the other pole arms are cool, but the pole axe is by far the coolest. And I think the thing that I think is so fascinating about the pole axe and, and the Anonymous, it's written to fight in armor. So how does fighting in armor with a pole axe differ than fighting not in armor? How does it change how your body works and stuff?
1: Um. So you know, fighting and same the spear, fighting the spear in armor versus not in armor are are kind of a different um, a different type of intention. And I certainly recommend people who are interested in understanding um, the whole art and I think also the art as it bridges between the medieval and the late mm-hmm. medieval uh, right. to get into some armor, have a little bit of that experience of fighting in in armor because it's um, kind of brings us into a little bit more of the of the the mindset of the time, but also of this shift between um this cultural shift between noble fighting that happens out of armor right um and well there's this noble fighting that happens in armor as well but there's this sort of uh, the 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 uh the move out of armor has a lot to do with um the narrowing of the classes you know it has to do with you know in germany there's a lot of these more um, middle class people starting to fight. That's not in right. armor. That's interesting. Right. Uh, there's also this sort of shift of um, you know when we get out of uh, to extrajudicial dueling. Um, this part of the the getting out of armor has to do with trying to make up for some of the manliness that nobles have lost by being off the battlefield. At least mm-hmm. to at least if we look at like Castiglione and Monty talking about it. Right. Um, uh, that's. That's part of what we see going on. So, I think it's interesting to explore both sides of that equation. Um, so, yeah, when you're fighting in armor, um, you know, with the poleaxe, I feel like there's not as much difference as there is with the spear. Um, okay. With the poleaxe, because the poleaxe really does tremendous amounts of damage through armor, I can tell you from having been hit with blunted poleaxes in armor, it still sucks. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, even without it being able to cleave into the armor in some way, um, it it can still wallop you good. I've I've certainly I've had armor you know ripped off my body. I've had my shoulder dislocated. I've uh, you know like the same time I had my shoulder dislocated, another guy had his uh, one of his fingers exploded um, because his armor got folded in by the pole axe on his finger, and there was nowhere else for the meat inside of his finger to escape except out the Holy. seam of the side of it. Um, and we're and, and this is fighting with people in in a convention where we're actually using a lot of control, you know. Let alone looking at things like Bohurt and you know Battle of Nations um, kind <laughs> okay. of stuff, where they're trying to collapse each other's spines in order to to, to win. But you can see that that a poleaxe does can do a tremendous amount. Um, uh, you know, if anything, maybe um out of armor you might you might need to not swing for the you feel like you have to swing for the hills so much um okay um but but I feel like a lot of the actions are very similar um I think the interesting thing with polex in armor is um uh deep disbalancing your opponent is a lot easier in armor okay um so striking just even I, i've certainly had fights in indeed fighting where i've struck somebody with the pole axe and they just lost their balance because they were more top heavy and just the added impact of the weapon carried them off their center more easily and so you've got to be more aware of that in pole axe fighting you know I, that's important wow. to okay. try to stay low in your in your armor uh, okay. to counteract the fact that your breastplate and your helm make you more top heavy um there there is um, i think there's more there's an interesting distinction maybe joko strato becomes safer in armored fighting um in a certain way than joko largo so in largo is where if we come back to um uh, that uh, quote that I think Josh brought up last time we were chatting about uh, in, you know, in Joko uh, I, you know, at least staying in Joko I can um, have the benefit of only being struck by the lower part of the weapon instead of the upper end of the weapon. Right, right. Um, and there's, that's a, a truism for the Polex is that, you know, certainly if I'm in Jocostretto, there is wrestling plays and there is, you know, thrusting plays that I can do. But I now in armor, I have to seek out these points in the armor that are vulnerable to thrusts. Whereas in Joko Largo, I can use all of the capacity of the weapon at that distance. Um, and so, you know, Joko Largo is a more dangerous place to be interacting with the Pole X. Whereas in unarmored Pole X fighting, I would say the Stretto and the Largo are both really dangerous. Uh, I'm just as worried right. in, in Joko Stretto being run okay. through the, the spear point, if a Pole X has a spear point, um, as I am to being struck being by Being open, okay. Yeah.
2: So you're really trying to get away from that axe head by getting in, so it solves that tactical
1: problem. Right, and so, um, so there is, you know, there's there's a lot of um, uh, um, technique to, yeah, getting out of the jokalago space uh, and trying to transition into the strato space where you can then shorten your axe and then use it as a dagger to, to right. probe into those places, or like you know we think about getting into kind of fury type material fury does things you know he's that's where he has like putting the axe between their legs in order to make them fall over um yeah uh, stepping in and, and making various disarms or even covering their you know the, the fall over one he like puts the axe between their legs and covers their visor with his hand so that they <laughs> simply trip themselves Peek-a-boo. um okay um, there's you know there's also this interesting thing in poleax that there is the problem of uh, when the, the one of the problems that needs to be solved is the when the axe has been dispensed, when it's when it's made its blow, when both right. axis heads are now on the ground, um, okay. that that is a, a, a critical moment. And interestingly enough, and in lots of martial arts deal with that moment, the moment, you know, and when, when I was working with a student who you've got a student who does Naginata stuff too. a lot of actions of the Naginata, you know, the Japanese bladed spear, a lot of the practice has to do with what do you do when both weapons are down. When they have both, you know, one has made a blow and the other has crossed that blow. What do we do now? Um, and that's a lot of the the material there. And I think that's becomes different unarmored. In unarmored, just popping the point up suddenly has immediate risk to to the other person. But in armored, in some ways the that is now a point of entry when both the heads are down. Now there's this the safety to enter past that place because the weapon needs needs some some work to do damage because you're wearing
2: armor so is that when you would use the calcho, like the the heel or the butt of the yes of the okay so you would bring it down and then you'd flop it over and try and hit him with the butt and enter right that's the
1: to me that's the in a pole one thing i sometimes say sort of to my students the pole axis is great blend between like the long sword and the rapier one end is a rapier and the other end's a long sword um you know <laughs> there's there's the fencing end and then there's this the striking end, so, um, and there's you know, mayor and palace Hector Mary he shows a bunch of things of like even entering or f- playing with the the pedal, um, yeah. uh and doing these actions at the pedal, and then and then you're finding these moments to either you know strike into the hand or to suddenly bring the business end of the axe back around uh when the when the perhaps you know I'd say often when they try to exit from this kind of stretto play you set up at the right. pedal, then they yeah. suddenly are in the vulnerable space of the um, of the head of the axe uh,
2: and that's why we would then sometimes use the pedal to parry instead of the head is after right. the axe has gone down you've come in to try to get them with the butt and they've actually withdrawn and they're coming back with the axe that's you now have to well, parry another with thing the pedal.
1: absolutely another thing to consider is the pedal moves faster than the axe head because there's less mass and it's counterbalanced oh, okay. by the mass of the axe head right um, right. So there's definitely places where moving the pedal just gets there quicker. And often when you are the second the, the second actor, um, like you are in many Perry's, um, then you need to be able to make up for lost time. Right, right,
2: okay. Sweet, that's really cool. Um, are there significant differences that you would uh, say exist in the Anonimo Bolognese section on the polax compared to Fiore or Jules la Hatch or Meyer?
1: Um, yeah, yeah, like, you know, it's, uh, um, de la Hache has a bunch of really interesting shortening plays that have to, that involve getting in close and shortening the axe and a bunch of plays at the, the crossed halves, um, to a greater degree. Um, I feel like there's more fencing in the Anonimo. Um, and, you know, Meyer, I honestly, like, and so Meyer... Joaquin Meyer. I have not spent as much time on his axe material to feel like I can speak to oh, it. Oh, I was thinking. Uh, speaking but, of my Palace Hector, yeah, Palace yeah. Hector. Um, so Palace Hector is interesting because that that uh, his material there is um, there's just not as much continuity in the material. There's a lot more. You know, it reads often like a compendium to me. There's a lot of ideas, many many different ideas across many different pole weapons um, that are harder to um, Pull into some sort of cohesive approach um, to the to the acts, whereas Anonimo has an approach like it's it's strategic. I think the Anonimo's got is, is tremendously you know, like Jindal has an Anonimo. At least are both presenting systems based around the the acts that are sh- that are giving you some recipe about how to fence, how to enter, how to act, how to to and and I think that they're both. Um, uh, you know, my feeling on the Anonimo is that it's got more. I feel like the judo hash is maybe a little bit more um, practical in a sense of like streamlined, but that might be yep. just in what's the amount of material that's there. And right. the Anonymous gives a lot more permutation variation. Um, there's a lot of material in there okay. for for how to fence, how to how to actually really f- fight with that axe in all different stages of the fight
2: and so in my ears then a little bit more like monty where it's kind of like a collection of tricks a little bit or a collection of techniques well
1: he, yeah he, and it's he it's also, you know it isn't a book that was written by meyer it's a book that was compiled by meyer right, so right, it's coming right, from yeah, a bunch of stole. different sources yeah yeah right he stole that's true that well <laughs> yeah. some some he purchased some he compiled so, some, yeah. he <laughs> well, <laughs> some he stole
0: <laughs> The ones that he purchased, he purchased with the city's money that he stole. So right. bless his yeah. right. bless his heart, though we've got a great yeah. book out of it.
1: Yeah, really, like, we're uh, lucky yeah. that guy it was such it's, a jerk. beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's just doing Hema, right? Yeah, yeah. right.
0: But
2: cool. Yeah. Uh, so
0: when you when you think about fighting with a poleaxe, you're you're talking a little bit about with like um, the I'm gonna I'm gonna pronounce this wrong, so forgive me. The the hash. Um, when you're, do you feel like the measure for fighting in armor intentionally needs to be closer? Like, do you think that, um, that's a a space that you should be seeking? So for example, if, if you had two people, um, who have absolutely no experience with fighting in armor, but they decide to pick up pole axes and they decide to go out and they start working on the place with one another. Do you feel like there's sort of a prescribed measure that they should really start to look at and focus on in terms of how they approach developing their interpretations for those plays um, based on your experience with fighting in armor and what you have found
1: um well i think when we this is again a thing that we have to consider when we're looking in manuals is that manuals are often showing the places that they feel needs the most instruction or where they have the most to offer um, and so it's hard to know if because um, manuals spend a bunch of time, you know, whether it's Je, or whether it's Fiore or, or you know, the anonymous again is a bit of an exception because it shows a lot more material. But if it's in these ones, that show a more abbreviated form. Are they showing the abbreviated form because that's where they, that's where, that's all it is, or are they showing you that because that's what the, that's where they have something special to offer? Um, and so, yeah. you know, I'm I, I like would our say
0: discussion with the sword and small buckler where they've left out the natural blows, right?
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, um, so you know, to me, fighting with the ax becomes a lot, has a lot more variables to it when you get closer. It can be, when things get into a place, you know, there's always, I think it's a danger in fighting anytime you move to a place where, where things are even. Um, and so you want to, and there's, it's a lot easier to come into those closer um, places and, and find yourself even, which is dangerous. And that's because that's, that's just a step away from Um, so, uh, so we were just talking about how, when you're, you know, like things get more challenging, more interesting, uh, or, or when you get into these places in closer measure, because then things can be more even, uh, we don't want them to be even in a fight. You want to always (laughs) have it feel like you're cheating, Right. right? Like there's just no way they can win and it's all stacked in your favor. Um, and I think that's, again, you know, the goal of a lot of manuals is to show these areas that are tricky to stack in your favor and try to give you um, advice and ideas and techniques to to put things to your favor, more greater to your advantage. And I think that's those are those close areas of are the tough places. But they're only the tough places um, if your opponent knows what they're doing. And I think that's, again, often a missing piece. Um, I think it's a missing piece when people are approaching modern people are approaching the Bolognese material is. um often they train things that I would consider, like they're the things that are in the manuals, and they think, okay, this is like level one. And I think the manuals are often like level five. Right. And so they train (laughs) a bunch of level five things. And so they they then go out and essentially over-fence all their opponents. And that seems sort of fine when the... Other people also somehow have built a system based around level five techniques. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet it never seems to quite make sense. Certain techniques never really seem to make sense. You kind of have to force them to happen or they just don't come up or whatever. And that's because everybody has omitted levels one through four. And so, um, uh, so you know, like when I tell, uh, you know, how I approach somebody, how I try to tell my students to approach somebody you are fighting is I generally first say, can I just hit you with a blow? Can I just hit you right. with my poleaxe? Will you not do anything? Or will you make a parry that is weak in structure? And so I will just strike you through your parry. Then you show me, oh, actually, I can make a good parry. And then I say, okay, can I you know, make an earnest attack and follow with a second attack and, and hit you? Oh, no, you're able to make multiple parries. Okay, then I will make a feint. You know, I'm kind of working my way up. So level one is just basic blow. Then level two is being able to make a compound attack. Level three is being able to use a feint. So then if you're able to follow a feint, then I need to use maybe a um, multi-intention deception, or I need to use an invitation followed by an offensive provocation. You know, and that's, now we're working our way up to the level that we see like in assaults, which I think are, are quite... And even descriptions of actions like in the Anonymous, which are kind of presupposing that the other person, um, uh, that you, one, can, if the other person just does a single attack against you, that you can do a useful defense. Right. And and it's true the other way, that that person, they're going to be present in that bind in a particular way because they're actually preventing you from hitting them with the most direct attack you can make. And so if we go back to training pole arms, and this is true of pole arms, too. And I think that they can be weapons that people are can believe are really simple, that they're just throg smash uh, kind of weapons because of their mess and their their sort of apparently simple nature. But they have all of the fencing of Joko Stretto, all of the play and the feeling and all that plus they have two ends so they're two weapons that are linked to one another they have this change of mass on either ends so they can go from being like that rapier end to being a poleaxe end. so they've got joko Stretto, but with two different two totally different weapons um they have this transition between long and short between being really powerful largo weapons but also being able to shorten up and become very narrow weapons um and then they also are a different type of tool in a grappling situation. They're also long hooks and, and levers that, that change the nature of grappling. Um, and even the point at which you enter to grappling can be much earlier than it would be um, in, at sword. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of sophistication to those weapons that we need to acknowledge. And so in the training of them, I would start in the same way. I would start at with the weapon alone. I would want to use it both in the middle as well as at the end. So being able to throw the basic blows, the natural blows with both the ax and the pedal, Um, being able to wield the ax when I'm more towards one end. So using it long. So that's kind of being able to manage the momentum of the weapon. If you can't structurally manage the, the, the angular momentum and the inertia of that mass when it's in motion, that itself will work against you, especially if you were to work in armor. Um, so being able to just handle the weapon itself and then being able to transition between short and long. Um, if you don't have that basic skill, a lot of the when somebody enters very rapidly on you, you will be in the wrong mode and you won't be able to oppose them effectively. So you need to be able to, to switch between those things. So those are kind of, to me, some of the fundamentals. Then you need to have some of the basic parries. So being able to parry blows structurally well, both long and at the half. Um, and then you need to be able to adapt from being parried. I think once you've got those kind of basic that those kind of basic foundation, then I would start exploring a lot of the things that we see in uh, uh, in the manuals.
2: Sounds like a lot of how you would structure teaching swords too.
1: Sure, absolutely. First, just know yeah. how that... to
2: do it, and then you know you kind of build a ladder of complexity off of that.
1: Yeah.
0: That that was really great. Thank you. No,
1: yeah, you're welcome. It
2: was a great yeah, answer. Was really really great.
1: Right. Um, it's so your, the questions are interesting. I don't, you know, I'm not always thinking about uh, about uh, <laughs> uh, some of these things. So it's nice to just, you know, be able to talk it through with you guys off the cuff too. So yeah, they... I, oh, I, yeah. I,
0: I, I was kind of framing that question around the idea that I think, um, you know, it it'd be easy to come at the the manuscripts from a little bit of a realm of of ignorance uh, of what it actually feels like to be in armor, um, you know, and and. My fear is, having experienced fighting in armor, that people might find that they can make their blows with a little bit more body extension. You know, there there are considerations that you might not have out of armor that you do have in armor, where you might not be hinging at your hips to extend forward to like really kind of let your blow carry through because that's just a really great way to get your face pushed down in the mud and then stabbed in the back of the head with a rondel dagger. So, you know, I, I've, seen, I've seen that kind of take shape in a lot of ways as people have started to explore the material. And I, I just wanted to kind of get the sense of like when you're in armor, what are some of the considerations that you take you, you would have to make that you're not going to consider if you're fighting unarmored?
1: I think your extension point is a really good one that um, you need to keep yourself much more upright. Um, you know, when you look at Fiore compared to the Bolognese, when we see in their unarmored sections, you know, we see some, like in Marozzo, we see these, this kind of tilt forward um, in all of these unarmored places. I wouldn't do that in armor. Um, uh, some armor might not even allow you kind of the comfort to do that, but it's also just so much more forward. I just wouldn't want to be forward weighted uh, with my upper body in that way. And whereas you see in Fiore, he tends to be even in his unarmed section, because he constantly talks about it being an art, you can do both in armor and out. Um, it's a much more upright center body, which is something that's much more vital to armored fighting. Whereas unarmored, honestly, I think there's a tremendous amount of benefit to leaning in different directions. Uh, you, can, you can maximize a lot more reach without committing your body. You can minimize target area. Um, uh, we get a lot of that. Whereas in armor, I'm, I'm getting the advantage of being covered in shields. And so the disadvantages, of course, is that my it's not just that I'm heavier because good armor, you know, you can train up to deal with the, that kind of encumbrance. It's more the weight distribution change. That's the thing that's uh, that's the long term thing you have to work with. And so learning to be longer in deeper stances. I don't, you know, in unarmored we can get benefit of having there's there's benefits to narrowing your posture and lots of times to hide distance, to defend your legs, etc. Whereas in armor, there's tends to be more benefit to keeping a wider base. Um, Just because even when you parry with your pole axe against their mighty, powerful blow, if you have a narrow base, you probably will just fall over from having parried properly, like you parried well. And so thus you structurally formed a wall that they hit against. And if you don't have the the, (laughs) the base to sustain that, over you go. Um, So, you know, definitely fighting wider, deeper. Um, you know, another aspect of fighting in armor that I think is a, a big shift for a lot of people is when you get into grappling. Because um, a lot of, you know, if you think about a lot of judo throws and things like that, you do a lot of hinging. Uh, like, you know, if you do like a classic judo hip throw, um, you hinge forward to do that. Or like a lot of classic, you know, even medieval wrestling throws where you like lift a leg and you use a leg to throw somebody. Never do that in armor because it's just way easier to fall over. You tend to kind of want to keep your, your body, your, your, all your bits on the ground um uh when you do your throws i've also found you know armor locks together the backs of your like back heel throws and things like that that i do in unarmored wrestling i don't do in armored wrestling because the uh armor tends to lock together in those places So that's another kind of change to the techniques that are there. So it is one thing, you know, some people, and we do this here too, sometimes to give somebody the sense of fighting in armor, will will maybe like tape their mask to give them just yeah. the, the eye slot. <laughs> kind of oh you know, that, yeah. that does give you one piece of it, but it didn't change the weight of your body and where your weight distribution is. It doesn't change how your armor easily locks up on, can lock against somebody else's armor or actually even against itself. Uh, you know, when you get hit by a poleaxe a few times, your armor tends to not move as well as it did before. Um, <laughs> those are all, I think, interesting things that that um, that definitely inform what techniques are armored techniques and which ones are not. Um, I also, you know, I also am, am suspicious of. Um, whether some of these later period people who are really out of the armored judicial dueling fighting era whether their techniques were intended for being fought in armor at all or whether they've really drifted a lot much farther into um into this kind of different reservation realm yeah you know which could be you know we yeah. do pole arms do continue to be a part of civil guard um but often in much more light armored um circumstances um, and so then yeah. they don't have those same armor considerations. You know, if you're only wearing a breastplate and a half helmet, um, that doesn't have the same, um, issue yeah. of like, making yeah. make me fall over.
0: Yeah. When, uh, when Palladini talks about, you know, he talks about how you should learn every arm and, you know, he's got this very brief section with two naked guys holding halberds, And, um, but in, in the beginning of his, uh. In the beginning of his introduction, when he's talking about why you should learn every kind of arm, he talks about how you should learn specifically how to use a halberd so that way, if you're ever told to um, protect a doorway, that right. you know how to use the weapon that they're going to hand you, which is actually really great. And, and It's a great and detail, kind of interesting. man. Yeah. It, it is a really good detail. Like, why would I have a halberd? Well, you're either Swiss or you're, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're an Italian protecting a, door. a doorway. Right. Yeah.
2: Why is the halberd the weapon you use to protect a doorway? But it's, it, you wouldn't right. think it, right? That's what's so awesome about this stuff, all these little details. Um, cool. So one of the things that surprised me about the Anonymous poleaxe and armor section um, was the number of tripping attacks and disarms and stuff like that. Do those really work Like when in, when you're in free play, or that would you categorize as more of a gimmick,
1: actually? Yes. No, tripping attacks work.
2: Tripping attacks work?
1: Yeah, um, you know, like um, uh, hooking legs, casting the weapon between legs, putting the pedal under, those all work. A lot of that is because in armor, it is way easier to fall over.
2: Okay. So that part, Um, I guess, like, yeah, you don't have that part where you would go to catch yourself when you're not in armor, and then you get your balance just It's just once you
1: get disbalanced in armor, it's also just a lot harder to recover. Um, And so... Uh, so you know certainly when we're talking about in armor, um, those kinds of things are are significantly more effective. When you're not in armor, yeah, you know like having something put behind your heel, whatever. You just kind of stumble over it and you kind of recover right. very quickly. Yeah. Um, in armor, that's much a much different picture. You know, often okay. again throws that I've conducted, especially with poleaxe, it's such a long lever as well. I've often had people when I've been fighting um, just just even lifting and hooking the head of the axe can sometimes make somebody if they're if they get their arms up too high and they get reach a little bit behind themselves they start to tumble and they just can't recover <laughs> wow. um, and especially if you okay. then help them along a little bit in that process um, <laughs> okay
2: so staying uh, on so, your feet's a major challenge in armor it,
1: yes yeah i think absolutely especially uh it like it certainly can be if you don't stay low um uh if you don't you know practice really staying grounded. Um, or if you're kind of disrupted and to a place where you end up being a little taller, a little higher than you want to be. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough if, to, I wonder if
0: we just found a really good use for the spieto. <laughs>
1: <laughs> knocking
2: people over. Yeah. Well, yeah. If
0: you've got the extra length and then you have like the bat wings, you know, if you can go yeah. after somebody's ankle and take their ankle out from under them, then next thing you know, they're down on the ground
2: face first. In right. the mud. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's good to know.
1: Um, well, it's also like that sort of made me think of, um, you know, other types of attacks that come up with pole arms that we have images of are like stabbing the top of the foot. Right. Yeah. Um, that one's big. You know, yeah. Yeah. And that's, much, a,
0: that's a Manchialino thing, too. Right. Like he, right. he talks about how when you're fencing in the cell with the, the uh, partisan, you know, a, a stab to the foot is worth two points um, specifically. So, right. Um, yeah. Do you think, when it comes to overall armor balance, do you think it's the added weight to the head? You know how sometimes, like if you're doing a martial art, if you're doing an open hand martial art, and you were to push underneath somebody's chin or, mm-hmm. or grab the back of their head, you, you start to gain control over them. Do you mm-hmm. think it's the added weight to the head necessarily that makes that balance, and that's why a lot of the hooking actions behind the head that you see with the anonymous um, kind of are as effective as they are. And how do you? I think also that the,
1: the shape of a helmet. Um, uh-huh. There's a lot of priorities and helmet shapes, um, and so you know, like you think of um, you know those who are listening to us can't see that you've got looks like a pig nose bassinet maybe behind you there, mm-hmm. um, yep. And so the pig nose has the benefit of glancing away spear points, right? So like of making it harder to strike to the the front of the face, but it is actually easier to end up hooking upwards, right? So it's it's kind of trading one. Defensive benefit for another. And so I think that's the, you know, the, the helmet has to protect your head, but allow you to see, allow you to breathe, um, uh, protect you from, you know, from thrusts, um, and, uh, and also have the mask to protect from blows, um, that are just designed to shake you up, um, uh, but then it also, you know, lots of throws and things too have to do with grabbing the visors of helmets, grabbing the, 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 um, the, the sun rim, grabbing, uh, you know, like uh, uh, exploiting the connection of the avontail. Like there's all these bits that are on the helmet mm-hmm. has has certain types of bits. And again, it's an extremity um, that that is so controlling of the of the body um i think absolutely i think that the helmet not only is it the weight of the helmet up there but it is also the fact that it has um tends to have a lot of uh uh, it's not just a smooth ball Hmm. you know it's not it's actually pretty easy to
2: bits that you can grab onto
1: yeah nice the visor being generally one of the main targeted areas historically
2: Oh, the visor was, huh? Like they would try to stab you in the face through the visor?
1: Yes, that, but also just to do throws and things using the visor. Ah, Hooking the visor, grabbing the visor, uh, and also because people often fought with the visor up.
2: Okay.
1: Yeah, one of the the plays (laughs) in Fiore is against somebody with their visor up, and Fiore enters in and grabs the visor that is raised and throws them um, using the visor.
0: Well, that's like the Morazzo equivalent of the beard grab. Beard grab? Right? So yeah. Morazzo, yeah. <laughs> so that... Manchilino, not both do the beard crab. I
1: love it. Yeah. Everybody's favorite. That's the crowd pleaser.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that yeah. and the kick to the nuts. That mm-hmm. one's pretty great, right. one
1: too. <laughs>
0: Subjective gallantry. Right. Uh, right. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, I think just further on the weight distribution thing, though, I think helmet definitely makes a big difference. But, you know, all of your weight, you know, from being in armor, you're just are higher. Everything is, you know, you have a typically, you know, our men's weights. Um, are already a little bit higher than women's weights, Mm -hmm. but they're kind of around the belly button area just above the hips. And then when you put a breastplate on, which tends to, even if you have a fold, you know, the hanging plates, that tends to not be as heavy as the breastplate. And if you have a breast and back plate, then that's already brought your weight up. And then you've got spaulders. If you have pauldrons, then you're even getting into a heavier territory. Um, And then you stick a helmet on top of all that. Uh, I think all that just brings brings your center of gravity up and and then makes lots of different throws and things easier i think the other thing too for disarms back to that question um there's a lot more time at least in my experience in armor and it seems to play out from a lot of uh what we see in in um manuals that show armored fighting there's more time because there's a uh, when you're close there's less Mm -hmm. risk of just being um stamped stabbed because you've right. got armor there's, you hang out in that space a lot more you stay in contact in that space a lot more and so there's a lot more time to gain a hold on an opponent's weapon and attempt to disarm them uh, and you're spending a lot more time using feeling um versus sight and your opponent's also tends to be less aware of what you're of what you're doing too right because they their their hearing is impeded because armor is loud Um, They can't see as well because the visors block a lot of vision. Um, You can't feel as well, you know, like just with gauntlets and armor on, even if it's very well fitted, it still definitely impedes your tactile sense. And I think all of those things make it harder to resist disarms. Whereas when we think about when we're working with um, uh, weapons in unarmored fighting, the moment where a disarm can occur is very small. Yeah.
2: You can usually um, react pretty fast, yeah.
1: And much riskier. Yeah. Right. Cool. Did you have any more? Uh,
2: should we do the last one, Joshua, or do you have any more?
0: Yeah, we can go ahead and ask that last question. All
2: right. Dun, dun, dun. It's 1509, Devin, and you've been called to fight on foot with pole arms in a formation. Which pole arm do you take and why?
1: Mm. Um. My my first thought was was a pike because most people <laughs> <laughs> put it at pike, um, but but then I you know but a pike has got a pretty limited uh, repertoire of, right. of material that you're using in that. Uh, Um, and you want to be just like everybody else I would be that guy with the Spadone in the pike unit was there to uh, defend the pike unit against other Spadone wielding guys or to take on pike units with my Spadone that's who I would be even though I love pole arms in that scenario I'm the Spadone guy
2: (laughs) he throws his pole arms under the (laughs) bus (laughs) See, uh,
0: he's like uh, what was it Lucio Malvezzi and um, Friar Leonardo Prado Right, both okay. of them like to yeah. carry the e-stock into battle. Do
2: you yeah, remember that? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Punch right yeah. through their armor. and yeah, knock right. those pikes down. All right, sweet man. Um, great. I think that's that's all the questions we have for today. This is fantastic interview. Great. Yeah, it was a real lots pleasure. Of, I, I loved all the territory stuff. we covered. Was, yeah, boy, did we do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm impressed. You're able to come up with all of this off the cuff.
1: Yeah, this, this is what I do. Yeah, that's, that's awesome, man.
2: All right, well, Devin, thanks again. so much for joining us here. Catch you later. Yeah, take care. All right, see you, man.
0: And that concludes another episode of Le Arte del the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Devin Borman again for coming on and sharing his wisdom with us. It's always a pleasure to have him and be uh, able to tap into that brilliant mind of his. Next week's episode, we're going to look at this functional Renaissance families. You might be traveling for Thanksgiving, and we've got a Thanksgiving treat for you. If you think your family's screwed up, wait until you hear the stories of Renaissance families. Stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friends.